This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Jeans. They're an American staple. No article of clothing is more closely linked to our nation's history. Today, denim's a $90 billion industry, but that success didn't come easy. I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery Show Business Wars. We go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time. And in our latest series, we're unzipping how Levi's, Lee, and Wrangler managed to take workman's wear from the frontier to the runway and closets around the world. Join us for Denim Wars. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This is a BBC Radio 4 archive edition of Alistair Cook's Letter from America. Good morning. Ten days after the United Nations ultimatum had expired, that's to say, ten days after the Desert War had begun, the first day of February last year, I came off a plane in Southern California. This was the last leg of a little talking trip, and at the four airports I'd been in, you'd have thought the bomb, the bomb, had dropped. At high noon, the huge echoing stadium of the Dallas airport echoed nothing but the quick patter of a few tiny feet of the few travelers, about as audible as mice in a cathedral nave. For some reason, never satisfactorily made clear to me Everybody across the 3,000 miles of this country, of this continent, was terrified of flying. When I came out into the mechanical sunshine of Southern California, if I hadn't known the place before, a place named Irvine, I could have thought I was in some unreported part of heaven, which, as the book says, the book has many mansions. Well, this outdoor mansion would be one dedicated to the perpetual glory of American patriots, conservative patriots. Towering at the entrance to the airport was a gigantic, heroic figure after whom the airport was named. Must have been 20 feet high, none too towering for the man it commemorated, John Wayne. As our car drove off, and once I'd finished goggling at this immense work by, I believe, Michelangelo, I noticed we were gliding in an American car, don't doubt it, along a smooth, divided highway. Its name, of course, MacArthur Boulevard, named after the man who his biographer called him American Caesar the hero of Bataan and the Philippines, commander of the United Nations forces in Korea, until he was unceremoniously bumped by President Harry Truman for exceeding his orders. And somewhere along that boulevard I seem to recall another heroic statue in the imperial likeness of General MacArthur, who was in life a very handsome and commanding figure. Hollywood could not have achieved a better piece of casting for the soldier to overlook the Japanese signing of the surrender on the deck of the battleship Mizora and pronouncing the four epic words that brought the Second World War to its end. These proceedings are closed. 
I remember remarking to my host as we swept onto the broad and leafy expanses of the campus of the University of California at Irvine. Irvine didn't exist 50 years ago. I remarked that if there were two statues not likely to be found in this county, they would be those of Franklin Roosevelt and Adlai Stevenson. I might have uttered a blasphemy, two blasphemies. He shuddered and nodded his head. We were in Orange County, south of Los Angeles. Now, there are in California 58 counties, and they have quite a measure of self-government. Incidentally, the vote in national and state elections is always reported county by county. The town of Orange was born 125 years ago in a stretch of country that grew in abundance oranges, olives, lemons, and almonds. It was called Richland then, but the man who bought the land in 1868 wanted to change the name. He let a poker game decide it. He sat down with three friends, the four of them impersonating orange, olive, lemon, and almond. Orange won. It was then about 30 miles south of the almost wholly Mexican town of Los Angeles. Only 50 years ago, Orange had a population of a mere 8,000, the whole county no more than twice as many. And while I can find no record of how people voted, I'd bet that by Roosevelt's second term, 1936, very few Orange men were going for him. From its beginnings, Orange County has been a nursery and haven for thriving, white, middle-class, lifelong Republicans. They were suspicious of the glib Roosevelt, even in the year of his ascendancy out of the Depression to the throne. Ever since, you were never sure of the California vote until Orange County had come swinging in to balance or outweigh the votes of the detested liberal counties around San Francisco Bay. In 1984, the county went 600,000 to 200,000 votes for Reagan, three to one, the largest Reagan majority in the country. In 1988, 550,000 to 250,000, over two to one for Bush. Now, I tell you this story and its impressive statistics because the latest word not to be believed from Orange County, as I speak, is in a county-wide poll. Bush, 32%. Clinton, 58%. This is as if the stockbroker belt around Windsor, Wentworth, Swinley Forest, mounted a rebellion, marched on Westminster, and demanded that John Major resign in favour of John Smith. Well, this is a poll taken very soon, remember, after the Democratic Convention. Most, if not all, of the polls around the country, as you know, show Clinton in a commanding and to the Republicans a staggering lead. However, let's begin by reminding ourselves that shortly after the Democratic Convention four years ago, Governor Dukakis, remember him, was 17 points ahead 
of the struggling Mr. Bush. A party convention, however blousy and theatrical and self-congratulating, always acts as a tonic to public taste. Very like alcohol, a short-term stimulant, but really, and after a while, a true depressant. Whatever doubts exist as the Republicans come together at Houston on Monday, and doubts are rampant, I don't think there's much question that once the balloons have burst and the ticker tape has fluttered down and the candidates have stood there, their two arms mimicking a double eagle, the following poll will show a rise, perhaps a swift rise, in, shall we say, the potential or intended vote for Mr. Bush. It's always translated into the shorthand of popularity, but many more emotions are involved in looking over the candidates than liking and disliking. Everybody agrees, including the Republicans themselves, that they are in trouble, and our daily and weekly journals are endlessly saying so. I'm talking about the good, the sensible press, not the miserable howling tabloids, who are more than ever in the hunt for what the President and Governor Clinton rightly condemn as sleaze. Incidentally, the noun is new. The adjective sleazy is old and was originally used here to describe a fabric rayon that was cheap and shabby, such as early German immigrants attributed, I'm sorry to say, to my favorite part of pre-war Germany, sleaze from Silesia. In the past month, we've been subjected to a continuous downpour of pieces, surveys, polls, and panicky deductions from them, all showing, as many American conservatives believe, that Governor Clinton and Senator Gore will win in a landslide. Mr. Bush's own former Secretary of Education, Mr. Bennett, chivied and badgered on a panel program to talk about what has become known as the Dan Quayle problem, said bluntly, Dan Quayle is not the problem. George Bush is the problem. Mention of Dan Quayle, the battling vice president, was, of course, inevitable. For many months, grave and reverend seniors, pundits, and Republicans, even some close to Mr. Bush, have been privately urging the president to take Mr. Quayle off the ticket, or, in the usual way of such humiliations, invite the man himself to write a letter asking to be executed for the good of the party. The people who do this begging always have an alternative choice and excitedly insist that their choice would revitalize the party and galvanize the public. The two people most often mentioned were Mrs. Elizabeth Dole, the very able and beautiful former Secretary of Transportation, now head of the American Red Cross, and Mr. Jack Kemp, the cabinet officer who has fumed in the outer offices of the White House for two years, directing the President's attention to the rotting condition of the inner cities and offering a program called, and for long ignored, Enterprise Zones run by the inhabitants themselves. We all suddenly heard about this plan 
and Mr. Kemp, its author, after the shattering Los Angeles riot. Now, Mr. Bush, you may remember, sent a wince, like a whistling wind, through his party. By arriving then in Los Angeles in the shambles of the aftermath and saying, well, I'd planned to come out here later anyway, so this worked in nicely. There's nothing like a spontaneous remark as an index of a man's feeling. And like Mr. Perrow's slip into promising blacks help for your people, Mr. Bush's casual aside reflected what so many people find disheartening in him. Of course, he's concerned about poverty, bad education, drugs, crime, but he can't see why the programs he's initiated aren't good enough. In other words, he doesn't see these things as the core of America's present sickness. He looks on them as nuisances, distracting him from his favorite energetic concern, foreign policy. We'd all expected the coming Republican convention to be as automatic as a hurdy-gurdy, a mechanical coronation. But since the polls have gone on showing the president in a steady decline, there's a feeling in the air which may, on the journalist's part, be more wishful than anything else, that something dramatic and rebellious is going to take place at Houston. As I speak, it seems certain that Mr. Bush is determined to stay with Vice President Quayle. But I think it likely that Mr. Bush and the party have taken heart from the sudden emergence of very serious foreign matters which will require a sensible and experienced hand. The trade agreement with Mexico, the relief of the starving Somalians, the tension in South Africa, more than anything the spreading disaster of Serbia on the loose. In the two months or more after this convention, the comfort, if not the security, of America may appear to be threatened seriously enough to make very many of the voters who now reject or have abandoned Mr. Bush come back to him laggardly, reluctantly, as their tried and true protector. That was Letter from America with Alastair Cook. You can find more Letters from America and thousands of other programmes for curious minds on the Radio 4 website. When you need your bank, Capital One is right in the palm of your hand. So you can check your balance, deposit checks, pay bills and transfer money from your phone with a top-rated app. This is Banking Reimagined. Get started online anytime. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Oh.